0: This episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Conf. Newbie Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Maxwood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. This conference is focused on people who are new to programming who want to learn what the pros know or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current and a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 12th, and the call for proposals is open until April 28th. So come join us at newbyremoteconf.com. Hey everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week we're going to be talking to one of my co-hosts on Ruby Rogues, Brian Hogan. Brian, do you want to say hi?
1: Hi everyone.
0: So, yeah, I sent you a bunch of questions and we're going to dive right in. But, yeah, <laughs> I usually call out, hey, they've been on this episode and that episode, but you've been on a bunch of them, so.
1: <laughs> sure. First of all, thanks for having me, Chuck. This is great. I'm really excited to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, let me ask you first. How did
1: you get started programming? It was actually my dad that got me started. Uh, my dad had an old, he had an old Apple II computer. It wasn't old at the time. It was an Apple IIE and he, my dad was a teacher for the blind. Mm-hmm. So and he he had this box for the uh, for the computer that actually could make it talk. He could type in the text into the computer and it would make the box talk. And I was like, that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I was about in fourth grade at the time. And 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 then he's like, Well, you know what else you can do? You can, you know, you can make little programs, you can make the computer do stuff, like ask it it can ask you for input and you can do output. And and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I kind of brushed it off. And a couple of weeks later, I was having some trouble with some math. And so my dad actually wrote a program uh, on the Apple that would quiz me with, with some math uh, math problems. Oh wow! And he 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 wasn't a programmer by trade. He was a teacher for the blind. But mm-hmm. he just kind of picked it up. It was one of those things he just sort of picked up because it was like, oh, I got this computer. What else can I do with it to help you know to to help the blind and help uh, help my, reach my students. And so that's kind of how he picked it up. And so I just sort of learned from him back in fourth grade. And I was lucky because the library nearby actually had these books that were just a bunch of games. It was just a bunch of games in Apple soft basic and you just take the book off the shelf and you want to play this game. Great. You got to type in the thousand or so lines of code into your computer. To oh, do wow. It. <laughs> and it was just you just type them all out. It was it was it was almost akin to how if you look, if you study music history, like like how some of the composers learned to be composers was simply by transcribing the works of other composers. And so I, I always had a really strong connection with the idea that learning programming, one way to learn programming is to read other people's code uh, and and try to recreate it in, in the same way that a lot of the uh, the, the classical composers did. Uh, so I did that for a while, and then I started thinking, hey, what happens if I change this variable? This is the value of this. Oh, uh-huh. look, the spaceship speeds up. Or look, the bomb does less damage or does more damage. What happens? They're sort of taking – oh, th- this this makes a sound effect. What if I change the address it's pointing to? Oh, it makes a different sound effect. That's kind of cool. And this is all in Apple Basic, so it wasn't anything really uh, you know, really that fantastic. Uh, but I remember one of my first – my first actual real programs, uh, We everybody had to write these papers on – on a city in fourth grade. I had to write these papers and instead of writing a paper, I wrote a program that was like a virtual, a text-based virtual tour of this, of the city's, oh, uh, wow. the city's sites. That was my first program. And it was a very rudimentary photo, sort of a brute force, if else branching tree, but that was sort of it. And I was sort of hooked from that point on. Like I, I can make the computer do things, but then I gave up on it for a good long time. Got and got involved in other things that I was more interested in doing. I was actually gonna go into law and we had some financial issues at the time. Um, My dad lost his teaching job. I wasn't able to afford to go to the place I wanted to go and, and, and without being saddled with way too much debt. And so I sort of what was the fallback well I liked those computers I was <laughs> doing I was doing hardware thing as I was I was building computers I was fixing computers I I paid uh, a lot of my bills in in high school you know the, the fun money bills that you have when you're in high school I I paid that by fixing computers and setting computers up and helping people build computers and whatnot but I kind of left the programming thing uh, to the side because despite the the cool stuff you can do I never really got into the nuts and bolts, like the real computer science-y stuff. It never it never really appealed to me. I would just start falling asleep because math and that kind of stuff makes me uh, – I, I just – I can't pay attention to that. But I was always attracted to the idea that I can solve a person's problem with with, with code. So I went on. In, in high school, my last year of high school – we got a real internet connection. We had America Online before that, and uh-huh. we got a real we got a real internet connection. I lived in a very rural area, so we didn't we didn't get dial up internet and, until much later than other than the larger cities did. But with our local internet connection was this book on Netscape one mm-hmm. uh, It Was how to use the Netscape one browser, and it was just you know it came with a little floppy disk with Netscape on it, and it was this whole book on how to do it. Oh wow! But it, <laughs> but at the the last part of the book was how to make your first web page. Oh, nice. And it was a, this was an HTML tutorial that walked you through building your first web page and how to display it locally in, 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 in Netscape. And then it talked about how you got to find a hosting provider and domain name and all that kind of stuff. But it didn't really go into that detail, but at least it showed you, here's how you make a link. Here's how you put an image on it. Here's how you, you know, do these basic things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point on, I was like, I am hooked. This internet thing, I love this web thing. I don't think it's going to be a fad. I took a gamble, you know, turns mm-hmm. like it pay, turns out it paid off, right? Yep. Uh, but I, I made a, made a web page, and I realized I couldn't make web pages for other people. There were a bunch of businesses in town and nobody else was doing this. So I started up, I started a company, um, I started a consulting company making, making websites for people. And that's, that's, that, that's how I paid the bills in college. Uh, Was doing that, and I went into when I went into college, I went and said, "Oh, computer science! Obviously, that's what I must do." And then I got into computer science, and it was was all going to be C plus plus and computational theory. And then my eyes started to glaze over again, and I said, Mm -hmm. "What I like to do is solve people's problems with computers." Um, I don't think I'm ever going to write a compiler. I don't think I'm ever going to develop my own programming language but I like to solve people's problems the computer and I can clearly teach myself how to do things. And if I stand on the shoulders of giants, somebody mm-hmm. else writes a book on HTML, I can certainly use that knowledge to help other people solve their problems. And so what I ended up doing was changing my major and got a degree in business because I really sucked at business. Like I didn't really understand you know, how to run a business or anything like that. I was running a business, but I was doing a very poor job at running the business. I could certainly do the work, but and that's, so that's where I figured that's where my, my, uh, my, my gap was. Mm-hmm. And I got a job working for the college, doing web stuff. And one of their application developers, who was doing some database stuff, he quit. And they said, "Well, we heard you can program, uh, <laughs> and you, you're you're taking these these. You took these programming classes. Can you can you kind of pitch in here?" I'm like, "Well, I guess." And so I learned Microsoft SQL Server and learned some ASP and chipped in. And before I knew it, I was making web applications. So it sort of happened by accident. I was you know, again, solving the problem, solving people's problems, not coming at it from an academic computer science standpoint, uh, it was more of a, well, this, this needs to happen and this needs to get here. And yeah. as a result of that over the years, I learned, I wrote a lot of bad code because I didn't have a lot of the fundamental stuff that, uh, that my peers had. I didn't right. have the same knowledge they had. I didn't really understand object oriented programming until I started doing Ruby development 10 years mm-hmm. later, you know, and that's what I credit Ruby for is I credit Ruby for making object-oriented programming concepts much easier to understand. If you compare it to what you have in other languages, there's something about Ruby that, to my weird brain, makes it really easy to understand objects and OOP and composition. Yep. Now it's so funny. That's the, it. That's my story, man. That's that's how I got where I'm at. It's a it's a weird weird journey. It's it's funny though,
0: because uh, you know you talked about computer science and all the theoretical stuff and. I took a lot of those classes because I was a computer engineering major in college and it kind of turned me off to programming. It wasn't until I got out and had a real problem to solve and got into solving it with Ruby on Rails. I was like, oh, wait, this programming thing is kind of cool and helpful and, you know, not so, okay, I'm going to write this junk code and throw it away. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, what you're describing is, is sort of that sort of where, where my career has gone. You know, I spent a lot of time building applications for people and I've done some consulting for small startups and local businesses. And, you know, I, I had a day job working, at, working at the same university I graduated from building apps and supporting mm-hmm. the infrastructure for our front end pages. But what always bothered me was how we teach software development Yeah, there. And, 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 and that was sort of what I, what I decided uh, you know, I'm, I'm a good, I'm a good programmer. I'm not going to say I'm a bad programmer, but there's a lot of other programmers that are better than me. But what I, what I will say that I'm really good at is helping other people get better. I'm hel- I'm good at helping people learn how to program. And that's what I found out my strengths are over the years I've had the opportunity to mentor and, and train a lot of people. And that's where my strengths are because I started identifying all the things that, that didn't work for me when I was in the chair and I, when I was in the, in the classroom and I looked around and I found so many other people that in the industry that are really good programmers, they just don't have that formal background. One Mm -hmm. of the best programmers I know is, does not have a programming degree at all never went to school for it. Completely self-taught. He's a, he has a a degree in history. Nice. Um, (laughs) And he has a four-year degree in history. He has a four-year degree in history so he can get past the HR screen for must have a bachelor's degree. (laughs) Um, his, his, his his litany of web, web development, web design and software development isn't enough. Uh, he has to have that bachelor's degree. So he's very lucky and very happy he has it. Um, but that's, that's a, that's a different conversation altogether. But the idea of, uh, the idea of a a lot of the computational science and the computer science stuff that I see in the classroom is they throw a big Java book at you and they teach you Mm -hmm. data structures and they teach you design patterns, which neither of those in a vacuum are really something you can understand. It's sort of like, uh, uh, this is an argument I get into with software developers a lot. Oh, you should be teaching Git on day one. No, you shouldn't because they don't understand why they need it. Yep. Now you give you give people a, you 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 introduce Git after about six or seven weeks of programming, where they've already had to make twelve or thirteen copies of their program because they've lost it or they've lost the history or they got to go back and get it. Now you can introduce version control and say here's why it's valuable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what is really what's really missing from a lot of the curriculum out there. Uh, and I and I say I I say this with with much love to all the people that work really hard at at making curriculum. But if you don't connect it to a real world scenario, if you don't connect it to a person's prior knowledge, it becomes very difficult for a lot of people, not everybody, mm-hmm. but it takes it very, very difficult for a lot of people to make that connection and understand why it's important. Now, there are some people who absolutely love the theoretical. They love the algorithms. They love the math. And they can, and they can totally follow along and then they can make that connection with, uh, with real world scenarios when it, when it hits. And I have a lot of respect for those people. I don't understand how that works. I can't do that myself. And I know I'm not alone in that. And so for people like me, which as I learned when I took a a, a detour into adult education for four years, that's the majority of adults is that adults, in order to learn a new thing, need to be able to connect it to some prior Mm -hmm. some some bit of prior knowledge It's sort of. It's like the old, the path, the garden path that you, you dig into the ground as you roll the wheelbarrow from your front yard to the backyard, you know, that, that rut in the ground gets deeper and deeper. Each time you go over it, the path gets more and more worn down. And if you can get the new material on that learning that the existing pathway, it makes much, much smoother way for someone to learn that content or that, yeah. that topic, but if you just throw them into the weeds, you throw them into the tall grass without any context, without any understanding why it's going to be important, why they should know this, it becomes a big problem.
0: Yep, I agree. So you've kind of gone through, you know, you mentioned adult education and a whole bunch of other things. How did you get into Ruby?
1: Oh, I was doing PHP for a while. I was doing ASP and we had a, uh, we. there was this project that was happening that I wasn't directly involved in other than I was the Oracle DBA. There was uh, the the school I was at was migrating uh, a COBOL system over to a Java and uh, Oracle system. Oh,
0: that sounds. We had
1: we had this really awesome tool that was that migrated this hierarchical database over to an Oracle database. It was really cool how how well it worked and it was able to do it in like near real time. And so we could kind of keep the systems running in parallel. But nobody had any Java knowledge. And so we found this wonderful, wonderful person to to guide us through the Java stuff. And his name is Bruce Tate. And I will be forever, ever in his debt for where I am today. Um, And and this is something I tell him on a a yearly basis, how happy I am that we've met. Because he was there and he just kind of made this offhand suggestion after he looked at what we're doing. He says, you probably would actually – you've never heard of this language. It's Ruby and Ruby on Rails is a framework for building these things. And what you're doing would be much better done – in Ruby and Ruby on Rails. And of course, the management said, absolutely not. We're going to go stick with Java. And he said, OK, that's fine. That's cool. But (laughs) I was talking with him just in passing outside of one of the meetings. And we we just got to talking about things we're working on. I was mentioning I was working on a a web application for a, a client outside of work, a side project. And I was really struggling to get it done with PHP. It was taking way too long. And he said, let's go to lunch. And I, I was like, nah, I'm, I'm kind of busy. I can't. I use my lunch hour to work on this app. And he said, just come on, go to lunch. And ladies and gentlemen, if somebody smart asks you to go to lunch, you just go, you don't hem and haw. You just, if that, <laughs> itself, you just go. Okay. You just, you go because it in that, in that hour over, over some burgers, Bruce explained what rails was and, and gave me, pointed me in the right direction. And I swear to God, the next morning I had accomplished everything i've been working on in 6 months in rails in you know just overnight and and that was enough for me to come back i knocked off the side project in a, in another couple of weeks it was done and deployed mm-hmm. on linux thanks to some other people's help but then i said i went to my boss and said look this is what i've done done outside we we have to do this here for the kinds of applications we're writing the kinds of applications right. we're doing we have to do this here there's we we could we could save so much taxpayer money. We could save so much, so many resources. We, there's no reason not to do this. And their response was, well, we're on Microsoft windows. Does it work on windows? And I'm like, ah, no, <laughs> no, it, it, it doesn't. But, and she, and my boss said, well, if you can get it to run, then we'll, then we'll go with it. And that became sort of my mission. And I remember in, in, was it was in May, 2006 or so. I actually figured it out. I figured it out with, uh, help, with the help of, uh, Zed Shaw, and a few other people, uh, uh, Ezra Zygmuntowicz, I, mm-hmm. uh, he was very helpful in in pointing me in the right direction. And uh, I published uh, on my personal blog, I actually published a series of articles on how uh, different ways to get it deployed, which uh, led to me writing a chapter for the very first version that, that Ezra and Bruce Tate were working on of the uh, Deploying Rails Applications book for Pragmatic mm-hmm. Bookshelf. And that was sort of the start of everything. Was, was Okay, now we got Rails running uh, on Windows. We got Rails. I'm doing Rails full time now. I'm working with Ruby, which then led into me teaching uh, people how to do Ruby uh, around the country, done uh, seminars and talks and uh, private trainings and stuff, uh, which, you know, in, in turn led to me writing a whole bunch of books and editing books and getting into formal teaching. And it's funny because all the things that have come and gone over the years, we've Node and Go and these other languages. And yet when I have a project that I need to do that's heavily, heavy data driven, Ruby is the first thing I still reach for. And I'm I'm really currently in love with with Elixir and the Phoenix framework and working with Elm. But when I've got something to get done, I still don't have that level of productivity that I feel that I get with with Rails for just getting something done. And and that's. Why I got into this in the first place. I'm not that interested in the raw performance numbers and I'm not that interested in uh, in scalability and things like that when it doesn't matter because every single thing I've worked on has been used by like max 100 users Mm -hmm. because it's been a back office thing. It's been a behind the firewall thing. And there's I think it's really easy to forget that that's a lot of the work out there. A lot of the work out there is still CRUD applications behind a firewall somewhere to help some business process happen, to help somebody get their job done. And, and so I have always been the kind of developer who looks for the quickest tool to get that done. Uh, and so, so here I am you know 11 years later building stuff with Elixir and building stuff with Ruby still because that's the right tool for the jobs that I, that I find.
0: That's really interesting, actually. I mean, there there's so many like hot technologies out there people get so worked up over. And yeah, it's like, well, what can I get this job done on? One thing that I picked up from Adventures in Angular of all the shows that I've done, we had some people come in and talk to us about building quote-unquote line of business apps, which is kind of what you described there, where it's the stuff inside the company that makes the stuff go. And yeah, I mean a lot of people are doing a lot of stuff that nobody's going to see unless you work at the company that's using it. And, uh, yeah, in that case, I mean, wh- why does it matter? I mean, as long as it's not a maintainability problem or something like that, yeah. You know, go build it in rails, go build it in, in, in whatever.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the things that I've always, I've always been concerned of cause I see it, I've seen it, especially when you work on the front end is, there's a lot of a lot of fear and a lot of pressure that developers feel to be working with the hot new technologies, mm-hmm. and it's almost a, a peer pressure thing. Like, are you writing this application for you? Are you writing this for your customer? Are you are you writing this for your peers who might snicker at you for not using the latest and greatest technology because because you know mm-hmm. you know that when they view source on your page, they can tell that it, you didn't. They can tell you used Angular instead of React, for example. You know or backbone. Um, <gasps> they'll they'll know, and then they'll make fun of you, or they'll make you feel bad, or something, and 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 now, first of all, I want to see our industry stop doing that. Mm-hmm. I want to see us support each other in our efforts. Hey, that's a great application. That's a great idea. I like how you did that as opposed to, oh, you used last week's framework or last year's technology. Ew, get with the times, man. I don't want to yeah. see that because it doesn't, it doesn't help anybody. And it's not, about, it's not about what we're supposed to be doing. You don't get paid by the lines of code you write as a software developer. You don't get paid to impress your friends in the development community. You get paid to make people's problems go away yep that's what you get paid to do you solve people's problems now code is your tool for doing that an electrician they solve your problems by bringing their specific set of tools and their ne- methodologies doctors they solve their problems using their methodologies mm-hmm. they're all problem solvers and that's what programmers are we're not we're not as important as we think we are in, in, in some <laughs>
0: reason, you know?
1: we, yeah. we are we are paid to solve people's problems and if you can't solve the person's problem they'll find somebody else who can solve the person's problem
0: yep yeah, that's that's really an interesting standpoint. And yeah, I, I completely agree. Again, I mean, it's just especially in JavaScript, you know, because I'm, I'm over in that world with JavaScript Jabber and I talk to a lot of people out there and I actually had one co-host quit the show because we weren't talking about all of the stuff that was interesting to him. But we were talking about stuff that our audience needed to hear. And sometimes it just wasn't the cool, hot new thing. And yeah, I mean, it it's true people are trying to solve a problem they're not necessarily in it to i mean you know it's fun to use the latest technology and you know pick up new things but yeah sometimes you just need to have the problem solved
1: well and i don't think it's i don't think it's necessarily uh bad to be looking at the new thing because you're going to learn you're going to learn new ways to solve problems Mm -hmm. but what i'm what i really hope we stop doing is stop making people feel bad for not using the thing. like look i've tried angular I've even given talks about Angular. Turns out, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. Just doesn't just doesn't work for me. But I'm not going to say, "No, don't use Angular, use React." I'm not going to say that because yep. that's not my place. Now, when I was young and dumb and brash, yeah, I would say stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I'm I'm just as guilty as everybody else. I've learned from my mistakes and I've learned that there's a there's a better and more constructive way for me to help other people get better at software development there's a there's a, a a constructive way of of doing that and there's a destructive way and i think making people feel bad or making people feel afraid that their skills are out of date that's that's not as constructive as saying yeah. hey there's a new technology and you know i've been working with elm for the last 6 6 months and i got to tell you learning elm has made me a better javascript developer because i'm able even though i even though i'm not using elm to write my JavaScript, I'm still applying the same concepts. I'm still applying the same structure. Elm's architecture is very similar to what React and Redux together does. And and so using Elm has made it easier for me to understand what's going on in Redux and all those mm-hmm. applications structure. That's a huge benefit that if I had been the exact opposite, it had been the, the stick in the mud saying, uh, I got my tools and I'm just going to use them the way I use them. You know, if I had done that, then I would miss out and I wouldn't have learned some things. So... Yes, do go learn new things so you can make an informed decision if this thing is for you or not. But don't make other people feel bad because they're not on the same bandwagon you're on right now.
0: Yep. Well, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, even in the Angular, I think they've done a good job of this, but a lot of people built huge apps in Angular 1.x, and now they're on Angular 2 and 4, and yeah, I think the people get shouted down that are... Picking on the the people who are stuck with Angular One for a little longer because they have a huge application to upgrade.
1: Yeah, everything's not just a toy application you yep. can do as, as a greenfield. You know, there there are there are some cases hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars worth of effort put in applications yep. and just switching things out. It's just not a luxury everybody has. Yep. And and that's that that's another thing that appeals to me about about Rails. Uh, and this is I don't think a lot of people state this. I know the Rails core. States this a lot, you know. A lot of the stuff that's in Rails comes from Basecamp. Mm -hmm. It's it's not stuff that someone says, "Oh, this would be cool." Now, I think there are some cases when that when that occasionally happens, and something just gets shoved into Rails. Yeah. Uh, but but in most cases it's stuff that's already been running in a tr- in a re- reasonably well traffic production application for a while before it makes it into the produ- into the environment. It's not an academic framework like a lot of the other ones are. Mm-hmm. And every framework that I've seen, as as long as I've been programming, always runs into these growing pains where there's you're going to have to rewrite your stuff. I mean I'm I'm going through a. a With some help, with help of some wonderful volunteers, I'm going through a rewrite of of Rails two to Rails three application um, because it's it's a very painful process if your application is large and complex. But that said, the Rails this Rails migration isn't nearly as hard as some of the other ones I've seen where the framework just kind of appeared and there wasn't any thought put into how the framework was connected. And then they realized, oh, that wasn't at all the right way to do it. We should completely redo it a different way. And then all mm-hmm. the syntax changes and everything else changes. And it becomes more apparent the more experience you get when somebody just kind of slaps a version 0.1 out there. Everyone goes and uses it. And then 0.2 comes out and everything's completely different. <laughs> um, and, and the response is, well, it's still in beta. And then and my response is, Come on, folks. Let's grow up. Why does it have a landing page and the splash page and marketing before it actually has a roadmap? Come on. Yep. You know. True. <laughs> so the next
0: question that I'm going to ask is: I mean, you've been in the Ruby community for a while, and you've helped you know publish books, you've written books, you've given talks. Uh, what what contributions to the Ruby community would do? You, do you feel like you've made that you know maybe you most proud of, or would like a little recognition for?
1: I think like getting getting the the fir- the first contribution I ever made was, you know, getting the deployment happening on Windows, and because there's a lot of people who you'll never hear of, you'll never hear from, that actually put that into production. That went on for a long time. I actually do have a couple of lines in the Rails source code uh, related to SQLite because of the SQLite adapter was being was being dumb on some connections. So that was probably my proudest moment. I was actually, hey, I contributed to the Rails code base. I actually made a contribution to the open source project that I use on a daily basis. But other than that, it's really been the work that I've done with uh, Rails Mentors, which is a community that helps Rails developers find other Rails developers who are willing to donate their time to help them out. we have a website that I started in 2009 called railsmentors.org. And that's a, a place where you can Potentially find find a mentor who's got some time who can help you with things. The mentors can sign up, and we we do a little background check on a mentor if they sign up to see if they've made uh, you know made a meaningful contributions. See if see if they've you know if they're going to be good people that are going to be helpful or if they're just you know going to be kind of a jerk. We try try to monitor those kinds of things, and we can't we can't really do too much of that because mm-hmm. we're limited on the volunteers. I mean, right now it's me. Uh, I have a couple of programmers that are helping me to get the site up to date, but it's still, it's helping a lot of people. A lot of people have come through there and, and had some really positive things to say. And so that's sort of my contribution is helping people kind of behind the scenes get better at things, coaching, teaching, training, uh, and th- those kinds of things.
0: Very, very cool. I think I'd heard about this a few years ago, but I haven't really looked at it in quite a long time.
1: The Rails mentors, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm it's one of those things I'm I'm really proud of. And i'm 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 really proud of the the people who volunteer their time to do it because it's really hard just to carve out that time and to donate something that's so precious, your time to other people. Mm-hmm. And so it's that that site is, is something that I had an idea for and put it out there. But you know, most of the credit goes to all the amazing mentors who are the ones volunteering your time,
0: yep, that's really cool. and And I think, I think a lot of times we kind of glorify the open source contributions and the code contributions and we miss a lot of the other stuff that happens in the community that just makes it a great place to be. And, and this is
1: one of those things in my opinion. Well, thank you.
0: So what are you working on now?
1: Well, I am working on, I'm working on a book can't talk about too many details about that yet, but that'll, that'll happen <laughs> later because it, it just got off the ground. I'm currently working as a technical editor for DigitalOcean uh, where I work, on the, I work on the content team. So if you happen to find a DigitalOcean tutorial that helps you set up your server or something like that, I work on that team. And so mm-hmm. I work with external community authors to help them improve their writing and get their content published out there for, to help other people. And it's great because I get to use all the system in background that I have to ensure the articles work. We we test every article that we do, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually a, quite a bit of fun because, we again, you, know, you, you get to use those system in skills that maybe got a little rusty if you were a software developer. Uh, but you also get a chance to see, you know, look at it from the eyes of the reader of are they going to understand this? So I get to put my teaching background and my technical background together. To pull off to pull that off and that's what i'm that's what i'm doing during the day and when i'm not doing that i'm either working on a book or i am working on a couple of uh side a couple of side project code bases rails mentors being one of them and i i have a, a tool that i'm working on in elixir for uh to help teachers work in the classroom better if you if you get, if you want to if you run a, a classroom where you're teaching someone to do development right now we support javascript and uh, html and css uh, directly in the browser, but it's a tool called CodeCaster. It's a CodeCaster.io, and it's it's designed to be used in a live demo environment where you have a classroom of people doing maybe doing a workshop or something. Mm-hmm. You need to you need to display code, and you can push the code out to the screens uh, of of the students. But the students can also privately ask you questions. They can privately raise their raise a flag for help, or you can they they can tell you to slow down, and you'll actually see a graph that says you know. Half the class says you need to slow down. It becomes a really helpful thing for student engagement. And it came out of my time in the classroom teaching people and noticing that I had some students that were sort of falling behind and I didn't really understand why they were falling behind. It was that they were, uh, they were too afraid to ask for help because they didn't want to look dumb in front of their peers. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to admit loudly and visibly to everyone that they were behind. They didn't want the instructor coming over to their desk and helping them through their problem. Because then they would feel inferior to everybody else around them who's saying, "Oh, I totally got this. This is super mm-hmm. easy." Uh, but this, let me let me do that now. Uh, someone using this software can um, can they can teach they can teach something. They can give a start. Here's the start of a program. Now make this program do X, Y, and Z, and then they can the students can work on that, and the student can then say hey, does this look okay? And that will send that Mm -hmm. that will send their code up to the teacher. The teacher can review it and give some feedback back and send it back. And the teacher can also kind of peek in on the students. If they if I identify a student in the classroom that's maybe having some trouble, the student can can, the the teacher can actually just like look at look at what they're doing right now. Get a snapshot of what's on their screen and in in the right there. Look at the code and maybe intervene privately if if there's a need to do so. So that's that's where I put a lot of my resources the last couple of years. That's actually not written in Rails, that's actually written in Elixir. Oh, cool. Uh, so that's what, I, that's what I've been doing. Oh, uh, I'm, that, that and this is this, a this, uh, pretty cool podcast uh, called uh, Ruby Rugs. So I've heard of it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind? Or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in Ruby. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got Ruby Rogues all day? Well, you can, kind of. We moved our Ruby Rogues Parlay forum to Slack. That means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel to pull stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon... We'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. You have some pics you want to share?
1: Yeah, I got a couple picks. I'm just gonna be completely and totally self-serving here. I'm gonna pick two of my books. I'm gonna pick my book, Exercises for Programmers.
0: Uh
1: Uh, This is, when it comes down to the the, the books that I've written and and worked with, this is the one that I'm probably the most proud of because on a daily basis I see through Twitter and other places that it's helping people. Mm -hmm. Exercises for Programmers is a book of just programming exercises. And they're based on the curriculum that I use in, in my classrooms over the last four years teaching Introduction to Programming. And so it starts out with the the most basic program you can think of. It prompts, type in your name, and then it returns, hello, comma, your name, exclamation point. Uh, if you've never programmed before, that's a more interesting program because you've got input, you've got some kind of processing steps where you're concatenating strings together, and mm-hmm. you're getting output. You know and that's a that's a two line program in Ruby. Right. But what if I said write that in a, write an iOS application that does that. Oh, wow. And what ends ends up happening is this book becomes the roadmap for you, the companion guide for you to learn a new programming language. Mm -hmm. Go through every exercise in that book in Elixir like I did when I was learning Elixir because I took my curriculum for my JavaScript programming fundamentals class. I took it and I did it all in Elixir. And I realized, hey. This is actually going to work pretty well for not just beginning developers to have some guidance on what kind of programs to write for practice, but also for a developer who needs to learn a new language and thinks like I do, where they can't think in the abstract. They actually need something to work for, work, mm-hmm. work towards. So one of the ones that I have in there is a, is a thing called Who's in Space. There's a There's an open data API that tells you who's in space right now. The people on the International Space Station tells you their names and what craft they're on. Now, right now, we only have one craft. But it's still pretty cool that you can hit a JSON API and pull down the people that are the human beings that are floating around in space right now. Mm -hmm. And that program is a lot of fun to do in a lot of different languages. You know, do it in Swift. Make an an iOS app that when you open it up, it pulls down who's in space and displays it on the screen. Okay, now do that in a text-based Ruby application. Do it in a Java Swing application. Then go do it in Elm. And you're going to learn so much about about the language because you're going to have to go and figure out, like in Elm, you're going to have to figure out how to do JSON decoders. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do it in JavaScript, it's pretty easy. It just maps over, right? You just use JSON yep. parts. But in, in Elm, you got to make a decoder. You have to decode the data structure because it's, it's a static-type language. Uh, so you learn a lot going through that process. There's no answers in the book either because I didn't want to force anybody to use a specific programming language. It's just a bunch of exercises for you to do. And the other pick I've got is the uh, my uh, book on TMUX, TMUX2, Productive Driven Development, which – I highly recommend everybody pick up, especially if you buy it directly from the Pragmatic Bookshelf, uh, because I'm going to be doing an update for Tmux 2.5, and if you've ordered it from the Pragmatic Bookshelf, we're going to give you the the ebook uh, update when when that happens. So you'll just you'll get the latest ebook copy of that when that happens. Nice. Uh, and I, I can't guarantee that from Amazon or other places, but I can definitely guarantee that if you buy direct. So um, and we with with that book, I'm I'm, I'm proud of it because I, I love Tmux and I love. Ah, uh, the reader reaction to it, but I'm also proud because I think we did the right thing. We also gave everybody who had a copy of the first edition, an electronic copy of the first edition, and gave them an upgrade copy of that too. Nice. So uh, it's 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 really important to me to to show love to customers and um, and try to do the right thing whenever you can, whenever whenever it makes sense. And in this case, it it made sense to me when the Tmux one and Tmux two versions weren't radically so so radically different that I felt comfortable saying, yeah, you got to buy a whole new book. So a decision we kind of made to just make it, you know, do the right thing by the customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so those those are my two picks, completely completely self-serving picks. But uh, you know why not, right?
0: Nice. <laughs> yeah, I made my uh, self-serving picks last week, or in in the episode I recorded an hour or so ago. But uh, yeah, I definitely will uh, jump in here with some picks as well. Now I don't know if I. I do so many of these shows, and they all go on different feeds. So if I've picked these before, I'm sorry, folks. (laughs) But one of the things that I've been playing with uh, and learning, and I mentioned this on the last episode of this show, is artificial intelligence. And I feel like artificial intelligence, IoT, and what was the other thing? Uh, AR, uh, augmented reality, are all kind of going to grow up together and, and change the way that we interact with the world. And uh, I I did a big rant on it last week, so go listen to that. But anyway, I've picked up some resources for learning artificial intelligence, and I'm just going to pick them really quick. So the first one is the Coursera course on artificial intelligence. So far, it's pretty good. I'm not that far into it, so I guess you can take that however you want to. I'm also not very far into the book that I picked up, and it's Artificial Intelligence in Python and it just walks you through writing this uh, stuff in Python. Now, I am not proficient in Python, so that's been kind of interesting at the same time. But I really want to learn these principles, and I feel like there's just a lot going on there. So, yeah, I'm going to pick those two things. I'm really interested to see how this grows in Ruby and some of the other languages that I I enjoy, maybe a little bit more than Python. Um, But Python has a lot of the scientific and mathematical libraries that people are going to base this stuff on. And they're kind of well known for that. So that's why those are the way they are. Um, but yeah, uh, overall, I think that's going to be kind of the next web is is some combination of those things. So anyway, those are my picks. I'll put links Very to those cool. in the show notes. Brian, if people want to follow you, see what you're working on these days, are, are you on Twitter? Do you have a blog? Things like
1: that. Yeah, I'm on a few places, but uh, Twitter is probably a great place to start. It's uh, just B is in Brian, P is in Patrick, H O G A N on Twitter, and I have my website's also bphogan.com. dot com, and um, I'm I'm try I try to be B.P. Hogan everywhere on the internet's uh, wherever wherever it will allow. But Twitter's probably the best place to get a hold of me.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we'll have another story for you next week. Thanks, everyone.